I don't know if you've ever had a moment where uh, you tried to help someone, but they just wouldn't listen to you. Have you ever experienced that? Like, like if you're a parent, you can relate to this for sure, because there's moments where all kids intentionally do the opposite of what their parents are telling them to do. A few years ago, we were at Disneyland with my brother and his family, and my nephew is a pretty big kid. His name's Caden. He's uh, 17 years old. He has a, 17, a size 15 shoe, excuse me. Uh, he's still growing, and he's a big, he's a big old boy. Uh, and so it, it wasn't quite, you know, his shoe wasn't quite a 15 back then, but it was probably a 12 or th- size 12 or 13. It was a pretty, pretty big kid for just a, you know, a young teenager. Uh, and, and we had been doing Disneyland, and we... Uh, walked over in the Fantasyland area in uh, Tomorrowland, went over to the, the monorail and walked up to the top. We're waiting for the monorail. And if you've never been to Disneyland, the monorail area kind of overlooks this body of water, which is where the Nemo submarine ride is. And, uh, and he, all, all day long, he had been sticking his foot while we're waiting, he'd stick his foot through the railing of, of the gate that we were all sitting there. And his parents kept telling him, dude, he'd get his shoe caught and he'd have to wrestle it out. And his parents get, dude, stop sticking your foot through the railing. So we were waiting for the monorail. He stuck his foot through the railing, railing. the monorail uh, came rolling up and they were like, dude, we got to go. He starts to pull his foot out and his shoe came off and his big 12 Size, you know, 13 shoe fell from the top of the platform all the way down, right into the Nemo water to become a permanent artifact on the Nemo ride. It's like, oh, look, a shoe. Uh, Because kids don't listen, right? And if you're young and you don't have kids yet, don't say we didn't warn you. Like, it's going to happen to you. Not long ago, Hansi and I were moving some stuff around in our boys' room just a couple months ago. And, uh, and we found a ton of dumb, dumb rappers stuffed under their mattresses. Uh, and the look on their faces when we found them was priceless because they just, you know that moment when your kids know they've been had, like, oh, I, I don't, I, you know, and they're trying to figure out what to say. Yeah, th- those moments are pretty normal for kids, but there are also moments where our kids are a little more defiant, where they do the opposite of what you said just to spite you. Our, our daughter, uh, is Kay, her name's Kaylee, and she's 18, and she's actually back running the slide, so I'm, not, I'm gonna be really nice because uh, she's got control of what you see. Um, but no, she's, she's awesome. She's really amazing. And, but she was born from the moment she came out of the womb. She had fire in her eyes, man. She, was, she had something to say, and you were gonna listen. And when she was little... There were times where it wasn't just that she did what we told her not to do, but there were times where she would look right at us, look us in the eye, make sure that we were watching, make sure there was eye contact, and then do the exact thing we did. Don't touch that. Like, and then she would just look at me like, what? What are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Come at me. I'm ready. Don't knock over that Lego. Over there stomping on that on her brother's Lego. But if we're honest, it's not just kids. We often do the same thing as adults. Like, have you ever watched someone you care about who's trying to take what they believe is a shortcut, but you know better? You've been down that road, you tried that, you know where that ends up. So you're trying to help them, you're trying to warn them, but they just ignore you and do it anyway, and they end up exactly where you knew they would end up, going through exactly the thing that you said would happen. Anybody ever experienced that? Those moments are really frustrating, right? 
especially if you're just trying to help because you see something that they don't see, like you know something they don't know. You're just trying to save them from making a mistake or going through that unnecessary pain and heartache and suffering. You're trying to save them from having to learn the hard way. And, and haven't we all found ourselves in moments sort of shaking our heads and wondering out loud, like why the heck, why won't they just do what I told them to do? Why don't they listen? And the answer, honestly, is pretty simple. It's the same reason that you don't do what other people tell you to do. Because as it turns out, and you, this might come as news to you, but we as human beings don't like being told what to do. In fact, it's kind of pretty much a universal human experience. The way that we respond to being told what to do is like, yeah, thanks for that. I'll do what I want to do. Now get lost, right? We, we, we like being given the room to find our own way and discover it for ourselves. I mean, think about it. When someone gives you unsolicited feedback or forces their advice on you, like a huge part of the pushback you feel is, like, you don't, you don't really know me. Like, we may be alike in some ways, but we're not the same. So just let me figure it out for myself. There's this uh, really interesting dynamic that's pervasive in our culture right now where everybody is shouting at everyone else about how they should be living and how they should be voting and what they should be watching and buying and listening to and what's good and right and what's not and everybody's shouting and nobody's listening and all of the focus of the conversation is outward. It's all, it's all on fixing other people and getting them to think right and believe right so they'll start acting right and they can get their act together. And isn't it interesting that we all seem to want to tell other people how to live, but we don't want anybody else telling us how to live. That, that we pay way more attention to how other people are living and what they're doing than how we're actually living and what we're doing. Now, there's a word for that approach to life, and it might make you a little bit uncomfortable this morning. It's called pride. I mean, stop and think about it for a second. Think about the arrogance involved in thinking like, I'm not gonna listen to them because they don't really understand the nuance of my situation. They don't really understand what I'm going through, but I'm pretty sure that I see their situation really, really clearly. And if they would just take my suggestions, not only would everything be better in their life, everything would be better for everyone if they would just do what I want them to do. See, pride isn't just indignation over being doubted or questioned or challenged, which it is, but it also needs others to acknowledge that we're right. We know better. We know the correct thing. Like we know how to handle this. And the truth is, is like we all hate pride in other people. In fact, when we see it and we feel it in other people, there's something that's sort of like that tingle that sort of runs up our spine, right? There's something that rises up inside of us that wants to take them down a peg, that wants to put them in their place, that wants to, you know, rise up on them and be like, dude, you need to back up and back off. But as much as we hate it in other people, it's really hard to see it in the mirror because we think, well, they're wrong. I I'm the one to show them just how wrong they are. So strangely and ironically, often our impulse is to fight their pride with more pride. 
Instead of trying to do away with it all together, we get sucked into this back and forth where we're right and they're wrong and we end up fighting you know, their pride with our pride in the conversation and sometimes even the relationship sort of devolves into trying to out-virtue or outright each other. My pride can beat up your pride because my pride's good and your pride's bad. And here's the worst part of all of this, and this is where we're gonna be going today. It isn't, it, isn't that the image that so many people have of religious people in general and specifically of Christianity and Christians? Like, man, those people just think that they got it all figured out and they can't wait to tell you where you're wrong and to try to tell you and control how you live. I mean, for me, like, it, it's painful to think about it, but if we're honest, isn't that why so many people don't want to have anything to do with church or Christians or even Jesus? But then there's the dilemma, right? What, what do you do when you've found what's true and real? What do you do when you've found life? Because most of it find it really hard not to lecture someone when we're convinced that we're right and they're wrong. We're just trying to help them see like, so they can find what we've found. How do we lead people to the truth without falling into that same old cycle of fighting over who's right and who's wrong? Honestly, I actually think this is one of the things that makes Jesus so compelling. Because if he was God, then he knows everything, which means he's always right. He's literally the personification of truth. So then the question becomes, why were those who were repelled by religion actually attracted to Jesus? And the scriptures are full of those kinds of people and those kinds of stories. People who found themselves on the wrong side of the righteous mob, but they were loved by and drawn toward the person of Jesus. So we're actually going to look at one of those people today in Luke chapter 19. If you uh, are using the Bible app, you can open your Bible and follow along with us. Uh, otherwise, we're going to put the scriptures on the screen and uh, trust us. We didn't just make up this story. It's there. If you go look, it's there. I promise. In Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 1, it says this. It says, Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy, and he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Short people problems, am I right? Can you reach that? Verse 4, so he ran ahead. And he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. We're going to get to more of the story in just a second. But right off the bat, we're told that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And it might be hard for you to imagine, but the tax collection system in first century Rome, in the, in the first century Roman Empire, was way more screwed up than our tax collection system today. It was way more corrupt. And, and Rome had learned from previous empires. So when they would conquer a nation or a people, they would leave someone from that nation or people in charge as a ruler. And that ruler really just had two jobs, maintain order and collect taxes. And so Rome wanted to keep themselves insulated a little bit from the ugly business of collecting taxes from people that they were oppressing and had conquered because that, that causes those people to want to rise up and overthrow them. So they wanted like an extra layer of insulation between them and that process. So they would find people who were well-connected locally and kind of give them the 007 license to tax and collect taxes. And the only rules that they were given from the Roman Empire was the amount that Rome wanted. They didn't care how the collectors got the money. They didn't care how much they took. 
They didn't care how much they got. They didn't care how much they kept for themselves as long as Rome got their cut. And so as you can imagine, it was an ugly and brutal business. Tax collectors would often hire soldiers to shake people down and squeeze them for all that they could, you know, for all that they could through force and intimidation. And Zacchaeus was one of those guys, which means that he was a Jew who was well-connected in his community, but that means he was a complete sellout and a traitor to his people. That's the way people viewed him. Because he only cared about himself and his stuff and getting his, because that's who the tax collectors were. So he wasn't exactly the most loved or popular guy around, right? Because there was this feeling of like, well, he may be rich and powerful, but you were better than him because you would never betray your people like that. You would never do what he did. You're one of the good guys. He's clearly one of the bad guys. You're obviously on the side of good, which means you're on the side of God. And now Jesus, God is coming to town And so this is the moment we've all been waiting for, is for God to smack this dude down, for this this showdown to happen so that this dude and all the people like him can get put in their place. Man, I can't wait for Jesus to just beat this dude down and put him in his place. Zacchaeus, you just got canceled. How's that taste, Mr. Taxman? What? Oh, you're too short to see him? Even better, he's too good for you. He isn't even going to see you, which is what you deserve to be ignored because you're nothing. You're not worthy of even being seen by this guy, Jesus, especially of even getting his attention. But then something strange happens. Zacchaeus runs ahead of the crowd, and he finds a tree, and he climbs it. Now, if you grew up in church like I did, Uh, This was always a cute story that got taught to us in Sunday school about this really short, he was just a short guy that climbed a tree because he's just so, so, uh, you know, he he was kind of an endearing, you know, Zacchaeus was just this endearing sort of underdog cartoon character that everybody just was rooting for because he was just so short, he couldn't see Jesus, and then they were just so happy that there just happened to be this tree that he could climb up and and see Jesus, and everybody was just like, oh, look, he's the short guy, climbed the tree, way to go, Zacchaeus! I mean, he was basically the Rudy of the New Testament. It was just like, yeah! Zacchaeus. But that's, that's not the story at all. In this culture, no dignified, no self-respecting man would run, much less climb a tree. And remember for a second who Zacchaeus is. He's way more like Joe Pesci in Goodfellas or the Irishman than like Rudy. Like this dude, he's not the guy who climbs trees. He's got goons who climb the trees for him. He's got people who will knock some heads. If he wanted to split that crowd open and get to Jesus, he could have done it. But here's what's true. As shady as this guy's past was, he was clearly willing to put all that aside and to look foolish just to get a glimpse of this guy, Jesus. And so he, he found a way. Him climbing up that tree was proof of just how desperate he was in his life for something true and real. And it definitely got Jesus' attention because this is what happens next. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. 
Now, the text doesn't tell us how Jesus knew his name. We don't know if it's just because there were these giant posters of Zacchaeus around with his face on it that people drew mustaches on and, you know, X'd out and it had his name and, you know, he's enemy number one. And so Jesus was just familiar with him that way. We don't know if people were like, there's that Zacchaeus guy. We don't know if, you know, the people that were always trying to be Jesus's handlers was like, yeah, and the, 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 the tax collector in this area is going to try to come out and see you. And so Jesus is like, yeah, I know who that is. I know who's that. Or if Jesus just walking and he just does his Jesus God thing, because there's all these moments in Jesus's life where he knows stuff that he couldn't have possibly known, except for that he was God. Jesus sees him in the tree and walks up to him and says, I know exactly who you are. Zacchaeus, you need to come down because I'm going to go stay at your house. In verse 6 it says, so he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly and all the people saw this. Now the crowd is starting to go like, what? What's going on? All the people see this and they begin to mutter, man, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner, of a tax collector. See, if you're in the crowd that day, this is where the story takes a really unexpected turn. Because eating in someone's home in this culture was a sign of relationship and approval and acceptance. So when Jesus goes to eat at this guy's house, like because of what he's done and because of who he was and because of what he represented and all the ways that he had cheated and taken advantage of so many people, The crowd is stunned and confused and even a little bit angry because, I mean, Jesus should be like putting this guy in his place, telling him how wrong he is, that he's a sinner, that he needs to stop doing what he's doing, that he needs to change his life and fall on his knees and get right with God before he goes to hell. But Jesus didn't do any of that because Jesus always prioritized connecting with people over critiquing how they were living. He, he chose loving them over standing by and lecturing them. He seemed to think that you could show someone love without loving everything they did or that they stood for or that they voted for or that they posted about. The truth is Jesus associated himself with people of questionable character and of shady reputation with those people that everybody else spent their time trying really, really hard to avoid. And every time he did, it was always scandalous. The crowd would always get up in arms. There were always rumblings and murmurings and people being upset. And that was actually one of the biggest beefs of the the religious community had with Jesus, that they wanted him to tell people how to live, but he was way more interested in showing them first that they were loved. That was his priority. Now, there's no doubt about it. If you read through the Gospels, you read through the story of Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus had a lot to say about the best way to live, about right and wrong, about what's good and right. But he always led with love and grace and acceptance for who and where people were way before he ever pointed them towards or called them to something higher, better. And honestly, when you read the stories, he he didn't actually tend to personally confront or correct people that he didn't have a relationship with or or who didn't invite him into that place and give him that place in their life. In fact, Jesus seemed to believe in some strange and beautiful way that kindness was its own form of correction. 
That, that showing kindness and love and grace, that it, it showed something without having to actually say something. That it led with actions over words. In fact, the apostle Paul who came along after Jesus and was responsible for taking the message of Jesus and, 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 and spreading it all over the Mediterranean rim and all over the known world, who, who put himself as an enemy of the movement of Jesus. And then he actually had this encounter with, with Jesus that changed everything. And so he started traveling all over the, the, the world and starting churches and, and, and telling people about the story and the life and the message of Jesus. And then he would start these churches and write letters back to them and kind of unpack who Jesus was and what Jesus said and what it looked like to live out the way of Jesus in the context of relationships in our real life and in community. And in Romans chapter two, verse four, Paul says this in the beginning of the verse. He says, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? To which many of us would say, and many of the people that we know, and many of the people that we're neighbors with and we're friends with, they would say, no, I, I, actually, I actually don't know how incredibly kind and tolerant and patient God is with me. And the reason we'd say no, or the reason they'd say no, is because the people who are supposed to represent God, claim to speak for him, are anything but wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient. And then Paul follows up his first question with this one. In the second half of the verse, he says, can't you see that it's his kindness that's intended to, or leads us to, turn from our sin, or leads us to repentance, to turn toward God and not away from him. That it's God's love and grace. See, because that's what grace does. It pushes past all the mumbling voices of accusation. It ignores all the judgmental glances and it finds us in our brokenness and in our desperation, in the tree that we've climbed to try to figure out and get a better view of our life, to try to meet God wherever we think we can find him. And it says, come down. You're loved just as you are. See, grace doesn't call people out. It actually calls them up to live into God's view of who they are and who, they create, who he created them to be. It, it calls them up to something bigger and better. And that's exactly how we see it all play out in the life of Zacchaeus. So we go back to the story in verse 8. It says this. So Jesus goes to his house and Zacchaeus is there with him, it says, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I'm gonna give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I mean, it's a big if, right? Like, we, we, we know, we know what you did, right? But he says, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, not only will I give them back what's due them, I'm gonna pay them back four times what they're owed. Now, this is really fascinating, part of the story because Jesus didn't tell him to do this. But there was something about being with Jesus that made Zacchaeus want to give to people that he'd always taken from. Which is pretty incredible when you think about who this guy is and the position he holds and what he has spent his adult life doing. There's actually a a theory in sociology, it's called the looking glass self. And, And it's this idea that that you become the most, you know, you become what the most important person in your life, whether it's your husband or wife or mom and dad, your boss, a kid, parent, whatever, you become what the most important person in your life thinks that you are. 
that, that you begin to move towards that version that you know that they see of you. And that's what happens when we step into a relationship with Jesus. In addition to his love and him bringing his life and forgiveness and him setting us free from all the stuff that we've gotten ourselves trapped into, uh, there's this, when we re- reconnect with our heavenly father, I think th- you know, that, that idea that we begin to see ourselves the way he sees us and then begin to move towards that version of who we were created to be so that we can actually become who that person, that, that the, the one that loves us the most, that is the most important to us, thinks that we are. And I actually think that that's what started happening here for Zacchaeus. See, the mark of a relationship with Jesus is that the closer that you get to him, the more, you're, the more you find yourself wanting to love others the way that he's loved you, even when it's uncomfortable and even when it costs you something. And so Zacchaeus immediately begins righting the wrongs that he's committed repaying people, making amends, fixing the things that he's done. And then Jesus says this, verses 9 and 10. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this house today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Now, what a weird thing to say. You might think, well, yeah, I mean, he was Jewish, so he's trying to like, tell people, no, guys, he's one of us. But the truth is, is what he's saying is like all through the scriptures, Abraham, he was the, the in Hebrews it says that, that he trusted God, that he believed God, that he had faith in what God said to him and that that faith was attributed to his life as God's righteousness. And so what he's saying is, like, Abraham is the father of faith. He's the first, really the first human being that God approached and began to relate to God by faith. And so this is not about some sort of, like, ethnic heritage that Jesus is talking about. He's going, no, he's a true son of Abraham. This guy actually has faith in God. Verse 10, he says, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. And that's his way of just kind of silencing the crowds. You guys think you're better than him? I know who he is, but this is why I've come. See, Jesus doesn't tell him to change. He actually points out that he actually has changed. And why did he change? What led to this incredible reversal of directions? What broke through this man's pride and changed his heart? It wasn't being confronted by someone trying to flex on him and put him in check. It wasn't someone lecturing him on what to do or not to do with his life. No. What changed everything was the grace and the humility of Jesus, who saw him as a real person and was willing to love him and serve him and befriend him and spend time with him. In other words, it was the kindness of Jesus that led him to repentance, to a change in direction. One of the most beautiful realities of the story of the life of Jesus is that the more broken a person was, the worse they felt about themselves, the more likely they were to feel safe with Jesus, to see him as a friend and a refuge. Can you imagine just for a second, like if, if you're a follower of Jesus and, and especially if this is your church, can you imagine 
if we could recapture that gift to give to people. That the more broken and messed up their lives were, the worse they felt about themselves, that they began to see our church and you and I as the place where they would be safe and loved, as a refuge for their life. When I think about the kind of church I wanna be a part of, when, when I think about the kind of church that I wanna help build and lead, I, I gotta be honest, that's the kind of place that I'm dreaming of. That's the kind of place our valley needs. That, that's the kind of place that the people in your life and your family members and your neighbors, the ones that think they got it all together, the ones that, that it all looks good on the outside, and the ones that are messed up right out in the open. A few minutes ago, I, I read from Romans chapter two where Paul asked the questions, don't you know about the wonderful kindness, tolerance, love of God? Don't you know that it's his kindness that leads us to, when you go back and read the context, he's writing that, those verses, he wrote those questions to people who were being harsh and judgmental to outsiders. He wrote those to religious people who had it all together. And they were just like, we don't want those bad people coming in here and polluting this really cool thing we got going on. And Paul starts to write and go, hey, don't, do you guys not remember? Do you not know God's love for you? How in the world could you possibly have that attitude to, towards them? The religious elite of Jesus' day that surrounded him, they labeled him as the friend, a friend of sinners. And it was meant to be an insult, but it actually became an anthem. It became a rallying cry because when people spent time with him, they, they felt more loved and more helpful and more hopeful and more whole. And it began to change their lives. And, and I wonder if that's true of us. I wonder if that's true of you and me that, that when people spend time with us, that they, that they feel more hopeful, more loved, that it begins to change their life. Because if it's not, then maybe we're not actually following Jesus. Maybe we're just trying to convince people of how right we are and put them in, the pl in their place and how wrong they are. Maybe we're the ones that actually have the pride issue. <gasps> how could you? Peter, one of Jesus' friends and followers, he actually gives us the way forward. In one of his letters, he writes this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. It says, all of you, not some of you, not the people who are leaders, not, you know, a certain percentage, all of you. So there's an action. He says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. He's like, there's something you need to do here. There's something you need to put on your life. You need to clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Why, he tells us, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time, he will lift you up. See, in the end, None of us can give away what we haven't received. And the way that we receive God's grace is to humble ourselves. And when we posture ourselves before God in humility towards him, it actually enables us to be humble toward other people. And then 
this really incredible thing happens where our lives actually become a conduit of God's grace that and it, it passes from him to us, through us, to them. So I, I wonder this morning, who is your Zacchaeus? Who's your just like, yeah, man, that guy, those people, they just, everything about them is wrong. Because this isn't just a, a nice, you know, Sunday school story with the flannel graph and the characters, paper characters that move, and a guy that's too short in a tree. This is, this is about how Jesus loves and serves all people, all of us, you and me. It's that he loved and served the most difficult people to love and serve that were out there. People like this guy, Zacchaeus. So who, who is it that rubs you the wrong way? Who is it that you wish you could just put them in their place, man? Just give me a chance and I'll set them straight. Can, can I be honest? Like I have those impulses all the time. Those have nothing to do with God. Like that, that's not his heart for you or for me or for that person. No matter how wrong or bad or broken or evil they are or they seem or you believe them to be, Jesus declared that his movement would have one distinction that set it apart and it wasn't how right we are and it wasn't how righteous we are and it's not our moral superiority, it's radical love for everyone. Can you imagine if a bunch of us here started pursuing that kind of life? Like, can you imagine if that's the kind of church that we built together? Can you imagine what God would do in your family and in your life and in your friends and your neighborhood and with your frenemies and all the people that are, you know, just kind of on the outside? Like what that would happen, what that would do to your life and their life? Because it starts with us, with you and with me. And maybe it's time that we just take a look in the mirror and we have a conversation with God where we're just really honest about our motivations and we humble ourselves and we repent, which we turn around, we move towards God and we allow his kindness and his grace to begin to change us once again. And then we just go out of our way to love them like Jesus loved Zacchaeus because the truth is the way he loved him is exactly the way that he loves you exactly the way that he loves me. Let's pray together.